This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the first panel, Time and the Refugee Status Determination, chaired by Farid Vares, Special Counsel Fragelman. Thank you, thank you. Uh, my name is Farid Vares. I'm from Fragelman. Um, forgive me if I just give a brief introduction about Fragelman. We're an immigration, uh, global immigration firm. We have over 3,000 staff around the world. Uh, what our core business is, is assisting the global mobility needs of multinational organisations. But we do also have in our law firm in Australia a very significant practice assisting asylum seekers with visa applications, merits review application, as well as judicial review matters. Um, as part of our work, we have had some significant high court wins and other significant matters in the lower courts. We're very, really very pleased to have been given the opportunity to be involved with this very significant um, conference. We've had the, as many taken advantage of the resources available on the Caldor Centre website, the, um, particularly the complementary protection um, coverage that they provided to practitioners has been very invaluable to, uh, to us in our work. Um, it is also my great pleasure today to be um, chairing the first panel uh, on time in the refugee status determination process. Um, well, time and time and time and time again, we find ourselves as immigration lawyers, support people and advocates with the unenviable task of explaining to our clients how long a process is likely to take. Uh, for instance, in the 2013-14 financial year, we were faced with a cap on the number of protection visas that could be granted. We had to explain to clients that no matter if protection obligations were owed, in that financial year, they could not be granted a protection visa. For the time being, they had to wait. In the end, the High Court found that, for our client, Plaintiff S297 of 2013, invalid and in the end, the High Court ordered that that client be granted a permanent protection visa in a matter of just seven days. Over the years, it's been not uncommon for clients to have to re-participate in health and character checks due to delays in the processing of their applications. But delays have not just been limited to the primary stage, the merits review stage has also, uh, clients have faced delays. It's not uncommon for a client to have to reappear before a differently constituted tribunal because the tribunal member that they originally appeared before didn't finish the review before the end of their term on the tribunal and did not get reappointed. Preparation, addressing different issues, different matters which are relevant to that tribunal member. Another daunting hearing uh, is what clients, many clients have had to go through. Perhaps the group that's been subjected to the greatest level of uncertainty in terms of time is the group that's been called the legacy caseload, the group that's 
arrived between two lines in the sand, the line of 13 August 2012 and the line of 1 January 2014. By virtue of government funding, that group promptly and with great speed prepared permanent protection visa applications on the understanding that the bar on the lodgement of those applications, on the validity of those, would be lifted and they would be considered for the grant of a permanent protection visa. The speed at which those were pre prepared was then met with a two-year red light. For two years, there were a, at a red light at an intersection that they couldn't cross until 2015, finally, new legislation, they were told their applications would not be considered, those 2013 applications. They must prepare new applications. They'll be invited to apply for temporary protection visas, for safe haven enterprise visas. They generally won't get government funding and the red light is now well and truly green. We're in very fast mode now. They were to urgently prepare and lodge TPV applications, participate in interviews, and then have only seven days generally to provide any post-interview submissions to the delegate assessing their case. If refused at that stage, then they end up at the IAA for a very, very quick ride, as we will shortly hear. The quick ride, once completed, if unsuccessful, will then lead to breaks because the court process would take one, two years, possibly longer to go through. But then back at the IAA, the speed would be back on and we'd have to go quickly back through a review process. And then again, we'd go back on the brakes if we were unsuccessful. Linda Kirk, um, who, as we all know, is the Deputy Director Sub-Dean of the Migration Law Program of the ANU College of Law. Uh, we're very fortunate to have her to compare and analyse the um, trip or ride through the IAA as compared to the journey through the AAT. Um, another aspect of the legacy caseload is that once every three to five years, the people, if successfully in, in getting temporary protection visas, will have to be reconsidered, reconsidered for um, whether protection obligations are owed. Essentially, the process, the protection obligations determination process will not end for them. It will happen once every three years or five years, unless they meet what are the CHEV pathway requirements and are eligible for other visas, which will generally not be the case. Um, that, well, may, may, may not be the case. Senior member Bruce Burson of the New Zealand Immigration and Protection Tribunal is our second um, presentation is from senior member Burson. Um, unfortunately, he was unable to be present today and we will have a video presentation from him. But his presentation, which will talk about the um, effect of time on a person's protection claims, um, fits in well with this three-year, five-year cycle that um, our clients, the legacy caseload, would have to go through. Uh, our final presenters are 
Professor Richard Bryant and Dr. Belinda Liddell, they have a very interesting um, presentation. Uh, they are from the School of Psychology at the University of New South Wales and following their world-first brain mapping um, research on the topic of pathways to refugee trauma recovery. They will be giving us a presentation which I'm sure that uh, we will all learn very much from. There will be a Q&A session at the end, um, but I have taken well and truly too much of your time. And so without any further ado, please join me in welcoming um, Linda Craig. Good morning, everyone. This microphone happening here. Um, thank you very much for the invitation to speak today. Thank you, Farid, for those uh, nice words of introduction. I really like some of your metaphors there. I'd really like to incorporate them into my what I have to say. I'd like to thank Jane very much for inviting me to speak, um, and also to the organisers for uh, for getting me here. So thank you. Um, distinguished guests, of which there are many. I'd like to particularly mention the Caldors and, and to thank them um, for, uh, for giving us the opportunity to be able to have these kinds of conferences. Thank you so very much. Okay, so um, of course this morning we heard from um, Professor uh, John Francois and uh, he gave us the big picture in relation to time. What I'm planning to do in the time available to me is really bring us back down to the ground and to talk about um, how in Australia um, asylum seekers uh, face obstacles to the access uh, to protection. As um, Farad's already mentioned, uh, I am going to be focusing on the asylum legacy caseload, um, 30,000 um, asylum seekers who are onshore, and talk about some of the obstacles that they have faced. So as we see state-based processes for determining refugee claims, uh, refugee status determination or protection status determination is in fact crucial when it comes to the recognition of uh, refugee status and therefore access to international protection. Whereas mo much of the focus of academic literature in international refugee law focuses, and quite rightly, on the substantive law and jurisprudence surrounding the recognition of refugee status, Increasingly, academic commentators are coming to um, realise that the significance of the procedural elements of RSD in determining who gets access to protection. So, as a consequence, the RSD procedures in many countries, including Australia, is receiving greater attention and becoming the subject of closer scrutiny and critique. These critiques have shown that RSD processes, both at the primary and also at the merits review stage, are sometimes uh, as important, if not sometimes more important, uh, than the um, jurisprudence from the courts in relation to the constitutive uh, elements of refugee status. So critics of refugee status processes um, in Australia in, in the past have generally tended to focus uh, on the assessment of claims and the evidence at the primary and merits review stages, and in particular on the culture of disbelief uh, that permeates the process. So, for example, scholars such as um, Susan Kneebone and Jenny Milbank have highlighted the problem of uh, unfair or unduly sceptical credibility assessments by decision makers and the impact that this has on the recognition of refugee status. But more recently, attention is shifting to the procedural barriers that are being erected by states to limit the ability of applicants to gain access to RSD processes itself, themselves, 
and to be permitted to articulate their claims before a decision maker. As I seek to demonstrate in this paper, these procedural barriers are often just as effective as the physical barriers that we're familiar with and which are um, uh, increasingly being used uh, by states to prevent the entry of asylum seekers to their territory. I forgot about my slides. So, uh, these barriers to access uh, to protection, the physical ones I've listed here, as well as some of the procedural. So, for example, uh, physical barriers being uh, border walls, boat turnbacks that we're familiar with here in Australia, excision zones, many of these are Australian uh, border controls. But then there's the procedural barriers that uh, I'm interested in looking at. So, things such as enhanced screening, uh, visa bars, which we have here, fast track processes, and also limits on access to legal representation. So my argument here today is that um, the latter, these procedural barriers, are often as effective as the former in impeding access to protection. So as I said, I'm going to be looking at the asylum legacy caseload and uh, the amendments that were introduced in uh, December of 2014 and uh, came into effect in April 2015. So I've just listed here what those changes were. I'm sure many of you are familiar with them, so I'm not going to, to dwell on it. Um, of course, the changes to the refugee definition were very significant and the reintroduction of these new temporary uh, protection visas. But my um, focus will be on the fast track assessment process, specifically for the asylum legacy caseload, and also uh, the work of the new review authority that's been established, namely the Immigration Assessment Authority. So briefly, what is the asylum legacy caseload? Well, you'd be familiar with the fact that um, during 2012-2013, a, a large number of asylum seekers uh, came by boat uh, to Australia, some uh, 25,000 or more. We know that they were detained initially in um, offshore detention centres uh, in Christmas Island, also in Darwin. We then know that there was the expert panel in August 2012, which um, made a number of recommendations, one of which, of course, was the no advantage principle. Um, after this, uh, many of the asylum seekers were brought to the mainland. They were put on bridging visas, able to live in the community, initially without work rights. Uh, fortunately, work rights were added for these individuals in December 2014. So there's um, the slogan, no advantage. Uh, you may or may not be able to see this because it's quite detailed and I thank Rax for the, the wonderful diagram that they drew up. But my focus today will be on that middle section there, the pre-13 August 2012 and post-13 August 2012. And these are the critical dates as Fared um, referred to uh, as the line in the sand. Okay, so um, I should also mention that, um, that those who are living in the, in the community, as well as being able to have work rights, those who um, were unable to work do receive some financial and case management support through the Status Resolution Support Service. And I will mention that a bit later because that's important in this context. Okay, so as... Um, What's important to realise about um, these individuals, the asylum legacy caseload, and as I said, the critical dates are, oh, my slide's gone, uh, is, is pre and post um, August, 13 August 2012. Um, all uh, UMAs in Australia, all um, unauthorised maritime arrivals, are prohibited, are barred by the Migration Act, by Section 48A, from making an application for any kind of visa. 
So what occurred, and uh, Fred um, referred to this, is that in July 2015, after a considerable wait, bearing in mind that a lot of these people arrived prior to 13 August 2012, um, they started receiving letters from the um, department notifying them that the bar had been lifted by the minister and that gave them the opportunity to make an application for a protection visa. Um, this processing timetable is something I got from the Department of Immigration Border Protection website, which shows the, the timing for the issuing of these letters. And you can see it was a staggered process um, over a period of time. I understand now that all of the letters have been issued uh, to the uh, members of the asylum uh, legacy caseload. So in other words, they have now all been invited to make applications uh, for a protection visa. Now, because um, as a consequence of the amendments that I referred to earlier, uh, these applicants are limited in the uh, protection visas they can apply for. They can only apply for a TPV or for a CHEV, those two limited types of visas. And these, this is important because both these temporary visas are uh, limited in time. Um, they do not allow for a later application for a permanent visa. There's exclusion from that, as Fared um, alluded to. Also, they don't have a pathway to citizenship, nor family reunion uh, is not available to members of the asylum legacy caseload. So let's now have a look at some of the statistics. So these statistics I, uh, I got from the uh, Department of Immigration and Border Protection um, annual report for this year. And the department reports that as at 30, of 30 June uh, 2016, there were some 30,000 of these asylum seekers. So we're talking about a considerable number of asylum seekers who uh, need to be processed. As was mentioned, as I've said before, the uh, processing of their claims commenced in uh, late 2015, often for some people three years um, after they had uh, first arrived in Australia. Um, I've just received some up-to-date um, information and I thank RACS for that. Um, there has now been uh, 12,379 applications lodged as at the 30th of June. Uh, sorry, that's from the Department of Immigration uh, website, I should say. That was as at 30 June. What I received from RACS was the fact that um, now there has been 15,000 applications. So we're looking at about 50% of uh, individuals have now lodged applications for protection. As I mentioned too, the bar lift letters as I described them, has, have now been sent to all members of the asylum legacy caseload. So moving on with a few more statistics, these are from the um, annual report um, of the department. Um, as at the 30th of June, it, uh, it lists the, you can see is approximately 6,000 um, of both types of applications lodged. It's important to realise, and this is where the line in the sand does become important, because arrivals prior to the 13th of, 13th of August uh, 2012 are able to make, which is the second dot point, a uh, so-called regular application. It's still um, for a, a temporary protection visa, um, and they, but they proceed through the regular process. So their matters will be reviewed by the AAT, Migration and Refugee Division. Whereas the, um, the other 6,300-odd at the top there, um, they are people who arrived after the 13th of August until the uh, 31st of December 2013. And these are the individuals who are processed through the fast track, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. 
So, uh, as at uh, the 30th of June, uh, there were 3,411 applications that had been finally determined by the department. And this is where we're starting to see the breakdown of the figures as to the number of um, grants there's been. So, you can see that approximately, well, approximately 45% of applicants have received a, a positive decision from the Department of Immigration. Uh, 15,000, sorry, 1,552 either TPVs or CHEVs. I don't know the breakdown between the two of those. And we've seen 1,859 applications refused. So it's approximately 50-50 uh, at the departmental stage. These updated figures that I just uh, received last night um, indicates that um, as of October, so just last month, there are now 6,000 applications. So uh, about 50% of the 12,000 have uh, now had a primary decision made. And here we can see the numbers of grants of TPVs or CHEVs and also the number that were refused post-merits review. So these are people who have been through the merits review process, whether it's um, the IAA or the AAT. Um, there's 1,000 that were refused and are awaiting uh, the outcome of a merits review. There's 2,000 that have been assessed and awaiting checks, and there's still 8,500 cases on hand that the department has to, has to um, assess. <clears throat> so the point that's re really interesting of what I've been working up to essentially is that in this period of time uh, since this legacy caseload has, has been in Australia, the, the uh, number of applicants, the percentage of applicants, I should say, of the 30,000 who've actually received final determinations is approximately 20% as at October 2016. The department actually says in its um, uh, annual report that it estimates that it will take at least three years to get through the primary processing. And that's not including the time since the individuals arrived. So for many, of course, you have, there'll be people who'll be waiting six years or more for an outcome in relation to this. And this, of course, has many consequences. And uh, of course, Belinda and um, Richard are going to be talking about this, I'm sure. Um, but just from the information that I've been able to find, there's uh, absolutely no question uh, from reports uh, from UNHCR and the Australian Red Cross that this long waiting period, this delay, is having a considerable impact on the mental health of individuals and um, has even, there's even been three reported cases just last year of suicides among asylum seekers um, who are in the community, which is an absolute uh, tragedy. So moving on to um, the fast track process, so I can describe this for you in a bit more detail. So um, I mentioned that all of the 30,000 now have received their letters indicating that the minister is prepared to lift the bar and they can apply for a protection visa. Um, but of those number, there's still 16,000, despite the fact they've received an invitation, have uh, not yet made an application for a protection visa. The uh, department uh, reports that there's some 13,000 uh, asylum seekers living in the community who have not engaged with the department, despite the fact they've received the invitation letters. So That's a considerable number. And uh, furthermore, they're not no known to have interacted with any of the pro bono legal clinics indicating that they're in the process of uh, intending to make an application. So I, I uh, thank uh, the uh, Iraqs for providing me with that information last night. 
Okay, finally on to the fast track process. Well, it looks pretty straightforward. Applicants are invited, as I said. You've got 60 days to submit an application. You have your interview. Uh, applications assessed against the refugee and complementary protection criteria. You either get uh, granted the visa, like I said, approximately 50% do, or you get refused, in which case um, you um, then are referred either to the IAA or for those who arrived pre um, 13 August 2012 to the AAT. So it looks pretty straightforward. So I ask the question, why then is this fast track such a slow process? As I mentioned, only about 20% um, so far have received final outcomes. Well, the, the difficulty is, is that once applicants receive their bar lift letter, they, there's a lot that they have to do. They need to gather all the necessary documents that they need. Uh, they, they also need to, um, to identify, to find their identity documents, which sometimes they might ha not have with them. They might have to get them from overseas. I also understand that in, often it's necessary for them to make an FOI request to the Department of Immigration and Border Protection to actually see what information the department's holding in relation to these individuals. Because quite often, because of the time lag, um, they, the first statements and the like that they made could have been three or four years ago. And uh, so they really need to access that to see what's been said, what needs to be updated. And naturally, this takes time. Another significant factor is that they must complete this detailed protection visa application form in English, um, despite the fact that uh, many of them may not have access to uh, an interpreter. And more often than not, they also don't have access to any other kind of advice, which brings me to the next point. And this is the limited access to legal advice and or other representation, whether it's from a migration agent or just somebody who can assist these individuals to, um, to put together their application. We know that in March 2014, the government, in its wisdom, decided to abolish the uh, Immigration Advice and Application Assistance Scheme. And this has had, from what I understand, a profound impact in the sector um, there's also was a considerable withdrawing of government funding to organisations such as RACs. Uh, they have been whittled down to the extent that now they are finding that the, the volume, the, the demand for their service is enormous and they're just unable to meet demand. Um, again, I thank RACs for last night uh, informing me that they currently have about 700 people who are waiting for advice, a huge number. And uh, just last year, they, they assisted 5,000 applicants. So you can see the kind of demand that there is on a very limited resource. All right, um, there are a number of applicants who don't get to get um, IAA review, but um, I'll just move on from that because I'm conscious that I'm taking up a lot of time. All right. So, what is this Immigration Assessment Authority? This is a, a new body that was established um, as a consequence of the 2014 amendments. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of hybrid body, I must say. Uh, it was established in April 2015, and in July 2015 it became part, a separate office, uh, within the AAT's Migration and Refugee Division after the amalgamation of the MITRIT into the AAT in uh, July 2015. What's interesting is that the, um, the reviewers on the IAA uh, are not like we um, understand um, reviewers normally to be, that is, um, they're, they're not uh, statutory officers like members of the AAT are. 
Rather, they are public servants, they're APS officers, uh, so departmental officers, essentially, who are seconded across to do this, this work with the IAA. Currently, uh, I see that there are, there's one senior reviewer and uh, there are 13 reviewers, which is not a great number of reviewers given the amount of work that's going to be uh, flowing through the system. The uh, president of the AAT and the division head of the Migration and Refugee Division of the AAT are responsible for the overall operation and administration. That's why I said it's quite an interesting body because you've got the president of the AAT sitting over the top of this, these non-statutory officers. Right. So what happens is, is if the department makes a negative decision in relation to a, um, an applicant uh, and an asylum legacy caseload, then there's an automatic referral from the department across to the IAA. So it's different to the AAT where applicants get to make their own application. This is an automatic referral. Now what is particularly interested, and this is where the, uh, the procedural aspects come into it, is the, the manner in which the IAA operates. Um, within the legislation, it uh, provides that reviews that are conducted by the IAA are to be efficient, quick, free of bias and consistent with Division 3. Now, in a moment, I'll put up what the, the um, objective is of the AAT and you'll see that there's a couple of words that, um, <laughs> that are missing from here that um, are in the AAT's um, objectives. But the most significant thing really is, um, as somebody who myself is a for former member of the MRT and RRT, is that uh, reviewers must do their reviews on the papers. So there is no requirement uh, for the IAA to hold a hearing or to otherwise interview an applicant. And I think that is a considerable uh, difference for many, many reasons, which are haven't really got time to go into, but the one that immediately comes to my mind is that the ability to see somebody to put before you, to actually hear them present their case, their claims, to assess their overall credibility is something that you just cannot do when you're doing it on the papers. Furthermore, there's no obligation on the IAA to allow a fast-track applicant to respond or to correct adverse information raised unless it is the case that they're going to, the IA is going to make its decision on the basis of that information. So it's only in exceptional circumstances that the IAA will receive any new evidence uh, from an applicant or request new information from an applicant or interview the applicant. I have looked at a number of the uh, decisions that are published on the IAA website and so far I've not come across one where the IAA decided to interview the applicant. In many circumstances, they have accepted some new information in some limited circumstances when they regarded it um, as exceptional, but there, as far as I can see, no interviews have taken place. The information that must be provided, um, any information that is to be provided, I should say, by an applicant, must be provided within 21 days of the department's decision. I also understand from looking at the practice direction on the website uh, is that um, if a submission is made which is more than five pages in length, five pages not being much, it could be returned. So in other words, <laughs> they just want really short, short, sharp submissions if they are to be looked at or considered at all. Uh, I've got some figures here. These can all be found in the, uh, the statistics and tables in the AAT annual report in relation to the Immigration Assessment Authority. This one just shows you the breakdown of the countries of origin you can see that the IAA is looking at a lot of Sri Lankan cases. It's uh, by far the, the majority, followed uh, by 
Iran and Afghanistan. But this is what you would expect, of course, because these are um, unauthorised maritime arrivals and uh, that's the kind of uh, representation of countries that you would expect. Okay, so here's the interesting part. Um, so cases started to be referred to the IAA in October of 2015. These are figures, again, I just obtained last night from RACS. These are the most up-to-date figures. The IAA has finalised 374 reviews and of those, 288 have been affirmed. So you're looking at a close to an 80% affirm rate, affirm rate being, of course, agreeing with the Department of Immigration in relation to the decision. So that is a very high um, affirm rate, um, especially compared to some of the figures that we've seen in the past where unauthorised maritime arrivals were getting a much higher recognition rate. The other very interesting thing that emerges is that the average time from referral to decision is just five weeks. And I'll look at some of the reasons as to why that might be. But um, as Fared described it, I think he described it as a very fast green light, I think, at the IAA, which you've certainly seen. All right, now what's interesting from my perspective is to compare it for, uh, with the processes of the, uh, that we're familiar with, that is of the, um, the AAT. Uh, as I'm sure many of you know all of this, but I've just got a few dot points here. Um, of course, you'd be aware that the AAT is bound by, by a strict code of procedure, that uh, procedural fairness is codified uh, within, within the Act, and uh, the tribunal needs to afford procedural fairness to applicants. Um, the AAT procedure is one which provides for a full de novo review of the matter, and Importantly, the review must be fair, just, economical, informal and quick. Now, for those of you who've got a good memory, uh, you might notice that the words fair and just uh, are missing from what's uh, required of the IAA. Uh, very importantly, the um, MRDAAT cannot make a decision without holding a hearing. It is a, a fundamental um, requirement. It's only in circumstances where um, a member can make a favourable decision to an applicant on the papers that uh, a decision will be made. And from memory, the figures um, in earlier financial years for the um, MRTRIT, it's only in about 1% of cases that a member would make a decision on the papers. So you can see just how different it is in the IAA. In the 2015-16 financial year, the AAT finalised 3,600 protection visa cases, so clearly it has a much bigger caseload. But it does have a mix of both UMA cases as well as uh, non-UMA cases, and that's a bit of a breakdown there for you. I won't go into detail. This shows you the decision outcomes. This is a much better slide to be able to see uh, what happens in relation to UMAs in the um, RRT. Uh, what used to be the RIT, the Migration and Refugee Division, you can see it's not that much different. Um, the affirm rate, um, this is last year, 2015-16, was 67% compared to 77% in the IAA. Um, it's uh, still high, but not as high as the IAA. But as I always say to the students, if you are that uh, one person <laughs> who is within that um, not being, or rather being affirmed or not being affirmed, it's, it's a big difference when you look at it that way. All right, moving along. Um, that just shows you the non-UMA, which is an interesting um, uh, comparison. You can see there the affirm rate 73% on those who are not UMAs, which is a bit higher. 
Uh, time from lodgement to decision. This is the other considerable difference, the marked difference that you notice here between the AAT and the IAA. The average time from lodgement um, to decision um, for UMA cases is, would you believe it, 572 days, 18 months. Compare that with the time for decision in the IAA of five weeks. So you can see just how much more of a fast process this is. Um, I question why do AAT decisions take so long? I'll try to go a bit faster because I'm using too much time. Um, there's a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that the um, AAT in the Migration Division does have a huge backlog of cases. Um, so eff effectively what this means is that um, once you lodge your application, it's going to be a considerable period of time before it's even constituted to a member. So that's some of the time that's going to be used up there. Of course, hearings, the fact that hearings are held in the AAT is another one of the reasons. Um, I've taken this from one of the annual reports. You can see that um, the average uh, period for a hearing, the duration, is some two and a half hours. So if you're going to be gathering evidence for two and a half hours, then that's evidence that you're then going to have to give consideration to. Hence the reason for the lengthy time. Uh, representation is a significant issue too in the AAT. Um, again, these figures are from 2014-15, but uh, applicants are represented in 68% of cases, nearly 70% of cases. So compare that with the IAA, where it's so difficult to get access to representation. And the third dot point, I think, is interesting, which shows just how much more likely you are to get a positive decision uh, from the what used to be the RRT if you're represented. So 27% um, at the set-aside rate um, for applicants with representation compared to just 9% for those who are unrepresented. So that um, makes all lawyers in the room feel good. <laughs> okay, I'm winding up here. Uh, there's also the Ministerial Direction number 57, which has now been um, uh, revoked, but this also slowed down the process for a time as well because of the priority processing. Um, boat arrivals were to be processed last by um, both the department and also by, uh, by the AAT, or was then the RRT for a period of time. Challenging IAA decisions, um, there is a possibility of, if you get a negative decision from the IAA, to go to the Federal Circuit Court. Um, also, possibly some circumstances to request ministerial permission to lodge a second protection visa application. Um, and finally, of course, we'd, most of you would be familiar with the Ministerial Intervention Power, Section 417. That is not available to fast-track applicants, which uh, I only just discovered um, looking at that the other day, which is that's really your last resort and, and that's not available. Judicial review of IAA decisions, there is some information in relation to this. Um, these are uh, as of the 30th of June. You can see that there has been um, a number of, uh, about a third have gone to judicial review, and, but only one was finalised in the financial year. So I'm going to conclude now. Um, and that's just one decision that you might want to have a look at, which looked at um, procedural fairness and whether or not um, it has been effectively removed um, uh, in relation to the IAA and Judge Cameron um, says that, um, that it has been common law natural justice. Um, does not exist uh, in relation to IAA procedures. So I, I called this paper, It's About Time. I wanted to demonstrate how the procedural barriers, such as the 46A bar, 
operate to exclude UMAs from making a valid application for a protection visa unless they are expressly permitted to do so by the Minister and how this impedes their access to protection in a manner not dissimilar to a physical barrier uh, such as a border wall. Furthermore, if the date of arrival, this arbitrary date of arrival, this line in the sand as Farid um, described it, this arbitrary point in time, namely the 13th of August 2012, according to whether a person arrived before or after that date, will determine whether or not they're going to be subjected to this fast-track process, which I have just described, but is in fact better described as a slow lane, which I have there, which I love with those snails there. <laughs> So for the members of the asylum legacy caseload, the, the mode and timing of their arrival to Australia will continue to affect their lives for years to come. If their protection visa uh, applications, um, sorry, if their visa applications are accepted, then of course they're only going to be granted a temporary visa to remain in Australia and they'll never have the opportunity uh, to apply for family reunion or to, uh, to proceed on to, to the pathway of citizenship. Further, of course, because of the temporary nature of the visa they're granted, they will always remain a hostage to time because when their TPV or CHEV expires, they must again apply for another TPV or a CHEV to lawfully remain in Australia. So for these asylum uh, legacy caseload members who have done nothing except seek Australia's protection, time has been made by government policy and legislation their enemy, not their friend. Thank you.